If you guys have your Bibles, can you open with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 9? Ecclesiastes chapter 9. And uh, we ha- after tonight, we have just two more messages to go before we finish the book. And I think that's it's actually a pretty fast pace. Um, several years ago in Beacon, we preached through the Gospel of Luke. And Luke is 24 chapters. Ecclesiastes is 12 chapters. And we took four and a half years to go through Luke. Um, we started actually when I was a sophomore in college and, and I was in Beacon. And, and by the time we were done, uh, the college pastor at that time, Jesse, he was pastoring another church like in another state. Um, and I was the one who was up there finishing the book. And so 12 chapters, I think it's going to take us about six months. Uh, that's pretty good. Um, but for tonight, we'll be covering chapters nine and 10. And it is a big chunk. I think it's the biggest chunk that we've, we will take at one time in, in our study of this book. Uh, and I think we probably could have split this into two messages. But as you'll see, as we go through this chapter nine, a lot of it is actually review. So I think we can move through it pretty quickly. If you haven't been with us at the beginning, this will be a good time for you to kind of catch up with where we are. Um, but since it is a lot of text, two chapters, we won't get too deep into like each of these individual verses, but I think that works out well because really, if you kind of step back and look at these two chapters, this portion, I think there are two big ideas that the preacher is trying to teach us here. And I know when you look at it, it doesn't, it might not seem like that right away when you look at it initially, especially if you look in chapter 10, there's like a bunch of random proverbs Um, But big picture, here's how I want you to think about these two chapters, chapters 9 and 10. Okay, in in this section, the preacher is going to show us two negative truths or realities about life. And then he's going to show us two positive or proper responses to how we ought to live. Okay, so two negative realities about how life is. And then in light of those two things, two positive, proper responses to to how we ought to live um, in light of those realities. Okay, so that's going to be, if you look in your outline, that's going to be our two points for tonight, that a life well lived in this world is marked by these two things. And let me just go over them real quick, and then we'll take them one at a time. So um, first, it's marked by joy in light of death. And that's going to be chapter 9, verses 1 to 12. Uh, That death is the one thing that is certain in this life. And like I said, this is review, right? We've heard this already throughout Ecclesiastes. Uh, Death is going to happen to all of us. You and I, we will die. But that doesn't make us depressed. That doesn't make us morbid or it doesn't make us resigned. Rather, we learn that it teaches us how to properly enjoy God's good gifts in this world. And then the second big idea that we're going to see is this idea of uh, pursuing wisdom in a world of folly. And that's chapter 9, verse 13, to the end of chapter 10. Um, folly, you can think of as the opposite of wisdom. And in chapter 10, especially, we're going to see that folly is more prevalent. Uh, it is more common. It's maybe even more valued in this world than wisdom. And even more than that, folly is not just around us, but it's the default direction of our own hearts and our own lives. But that reality we're going to see is it, uh, that reality teaches us that we need to seek that rare jewel of wisdom even more. Okay, so I think that's how we can think about this, these two chapters, big picture, right? These two realities, how do we live in light of those two things? 
Okay, so before we jump in to our first point, let me pray for us um, just to commit this time to the Lord. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have times like this where um, even though we are not physically together, that we can still be in fellowship with one another. We can still all submit um, together to what your word has to say to our hearts tonight. And we thank you for a book, uh, especially like Ecclesiastes, where it really reminds us of how small we are, um, of how finite and how uh, little we know and are in control of our lives. Uh, Father, as young people, we confess that we especially need to be reminded of that lesson. And so as we go through this, Lord, um, show us and, and teach us uh, what this world is like um, accurately. Um, but even more than that, give us the wisdom, give us humility to, to live skillfully in light of that, not to be deluded with um, yeah, what we think or our own knowledge, not to distract ourselves from what is true, but really to listen intently to what you have to say, because we trust that you are the source of wisdom. You, you lead us um, to live lives of joy, even in a fallen world like this. And so uh, we commit our time to you, Lord. Teach us through uh, this portion of scripture. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's start with point number one. Uh, it is enjoy God's good gifts today in light of death. Enjoy God's good gifts today in light of death. So if you remember what's happening in the book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher has set out on this experiment. And the way that he describes it in um, chapter one, verse 13, is he says, this is experiment is to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. Okay, so imagine him like this tour guide. He's leading us through his observation of what he calls life under the sun. He's hoping to learn why life is the way that it is. He's hoping to answer all of these uh, questions that you and I, those same questions we might have about life. And actually, if you look back a couple of verses from our passage to the very end of chapter, uh, chapter eight and verses 16 and 17, we've actually started to arrive at the end of this tour or the end of this experiment. You look what he says in verse 16. He says, when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. And so what has he learned? Well, he's learned that wisdom has its limits, right? He, he sought out on this experiment to learn all that there is to know under the sun. And he realizes that you cannot know everything. That you cannot possess all the answers or you cannot explain and understand why things happen in the way that they do. In fact, that's how that's uh, kind of just this definition of wisdom, right? That we've been uh, crafting and putting together as we've been going through the book that a life well lived in this life under the sun is one in which we get that reality, in which we acknowledge, uh, humbly acknowledge that we are limited, right? That we are small creatures before our infinite creator God. Um, I like how one commentator describes it. He says, wisdom is not the ability to comprehend how the world works but rather it is the recognition that only God understands the world that he sovereignly created and controls. It's not the ability to comprehend how the world works, but it's the recognition that only God understands the world that he sovereignly created and controls. And so as we turn the page to chapter nine, as he's wrapping up this experiment, 
Uh, we're transitioning to, from observation and more to this tone of like reflection. Okay, if you look in verse one of chapter nine, he says, but all this, all this I lay to heart, examining it all. Okay, so some of you guys are science majors. If this is the scientific method, think of all as like all of the data that he's collected. And now he's moved on to the next step, which is what, like analysis or interpretation, right? And, and he's, he's interpreting all the data he, he has gathered together. And the first lesson that he's learned is something that we've already heard earlier in the book. He's learned about the certainty of death and living in light of that reality. Okay, so in this section, he's going to tell us, and we can break it down into these three points, the many things that we don't know, uh, verse 1 and verses 11 and 12. He's going to tell us the one thing we do know, verses 2 to 6. And then right in the middle is the wise way that we should live. And so what are the many things we don't know? We'll jump down first to verses 11 and 12. He says, again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the, to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. So verse 11, it's talking about how we are unable to guarantee outcomes. If you, if you read through that verse, if you look at all of those examples, um, the swift, they should win the race. Right? And the strong, they should win the battle. Uh, the wise, the intelligent, the knowledgeable, knowledgeable people, they should reap the benefits. Right? They should succeed. And you can even say that it does happen that way the majority of the time, but it doesn't happen that way 100% of the time. Um, I confess that last weekend, I almost bought some shares of GameStop. <laughs> Uh, and thankfully, by God's grace, I didn't. I think it was like three hundred and twenty-five dollars uh, a share at that point. Um, but I think, I mean, this is a good example of that, where there was this like widespread sort of thinking, where people, um, namely people on Reddit, thought they like really controlled the price, right? They thought they really controlled the market, and if we just like round up enough people to hold onto this stock, that this price will keep going up. And I mean, obviously, that didn't happen. Uh, but why don't things always happen the way that we think that they should? And the preacher says that time and chance happen to them all. Now, time and chance there, it isn't just talking about like luck. It's not just talking about like, oh, well, didn't see that coming, right? Like unexpected. We learned back in chapter three that time is in the hands of God, right? So it's not just like random, but he's talking about God's inscrutable sovereignty. Um, I like how one commentator puts it, and it's, this is really insightful. He says, the implication is that the inexplicable adversities in life, which beset human endeavor, are the product, not of life's randomness, but of its orderliness. If the wise do not earn enough to survive and the swift fail to win their race, it is because it is intended thus. But that's, so in other words, life happens exactly the way that God sovereignly wants it to happen. We think things are supposed to happen a certain way because that's like our perspective, but things happen exactly the way that God wants it to happen. The smart people should be successful according to our eyes. If you study hard, you should do well on your exam. If you put years and years into grad school and into career, you should be able to enjoy the fruit of your labor. Good people, moral people, they should be the ones who are rewarded. 
This is the, this kind of thinking that we operate with, right? And if you look in verse one, I think that's what he's talking about there. Um, he says, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God, whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked. And then he's going to kind of restate those two categories, right? Like five different ways. He says, good, evil, clean, unclean, um, <clears throat> same idea. I think when he's talking about love and hate there, right? Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. I think he's, he's talking about God's um, love or hate. Or if you don't like the word hate, you can think of God's approval, right? What God thinks of you. Um, it's this idea of retribution theology that Sichi uh, briefly mentioned last time. I think Job's friends are an example of this, where they like they observe the events of Job's suffering and they think they know what God thinks, right? They interpret it that God must dislike something that's happening in Job's life. And the preacher says, you can't know that. Right? You can't like just trace a line between what you see and what you think God is doing. To think that we can guarantee outcomes or explain the reasons for something, or even to think that we can fully know the hand of God is one way that we wrongly place ourselves in the position of God. And the preacher says that there are things that we simply do not know because we're not God. Um, Michael read this verse for us earlier, but you remember what James said about planning for the future? He says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And for us, we tend to live as if the one thing that is certain, our death, will never come. And on the on, meanwhile, the many things that are uncertain, right, whether we'll get that job or whether we'll get into that school or whether even your weekend plans will happen, we operate as if the many things that are uncertain are guaranteed. And I get that this is challenging to always uh, know what this looks like practically, practically, right? Like it's good. It's necessary to plan. I think especially in your stage of life as you're making decisions that'll set you up for years to come. But just consider what if we learned to operate just aware and more mindful of all the things that we do not know, all the things that we cannot control. Right? What if we constantly reminded ourselves what James says, what is your life, right? What if we said, oh, if the Lord wills, what if that was just uh, the, the preface to everything we would say? How would your life be different? And so this is why death is such a valuable teacher for us. Because like we said earlier in Ecclesiastes, death is that, that needle, that pin that pops the bubble. There are, there are many things that we don't know, but there's one thing that we do know, namely that one day we will all die. That's what he says in verses two and three, the same event happens to all. And this isn't meant to make us morbid. It's not meant to just make us pessimistic or depressed. Like you don't need to go uh, painting your, your fingernails black. You don't need to start listening to My Chemical Romance. I don't know if you guys know My Chemical Romance, emo band. Um, but the preacher here, he does give us a, a healthy, balanced, and realistic understanding of death here. Okay, he teaches us, uh, verse 3, it is something that we rightly grieve over. He says, there is an evil in all that is done under the sun. And on this side of eternity, at least good people and bad people, they both die. 
And sometimes it feels like, like there's, it's unjust, right? Like the good people get what the bad ones deserve. Uh, it, the preacher teaches us that we should prefer life over death. And he's not contradicting what Paul says in Philippians 121, where Paul says that it is uh, to die is to gain, that it's better to, to depart and be with Christ. I think all the preacher is saying here is that life affords you certain advantages, certain opportunities. Um, the word that the preacher uses in verse 6 and verse 9 is share or portion. Right? You have this as, as long as you're alive. You have this uh, and you simply don't have it when you die. The way he puts it in verse 4 is that he who is joined with all the living has hope. He says it's better to be a living dog. Um, and don't think of like a cute dog there. Um, dogs have a negative connotation in the Bible. Okay, so it's better to be a living uh, dog or a scavenger, even a rat, someone who's very low in society rather than a dead lion. Right? You can have all the power, status, privileges, strength in the world, but it doesn't mean a thing if you're dead. So death is teaching us is meant to be this valuable teacher for us, even while we still live. And we saw that in chapter seven, um, the whole passage about going to the funerals and the house of mourning. And that's what he's saying here in verse five. It says, the living know that they will die. But for the dead, it's already too late. Right? You don't have to wait until you get there to figure it out. Your tomorrow can change how you live today before you get there. And so what does it teach us? Well, so there are many things in this life that we do not know. Right? There is one thing that we know for sure that we will die. And then there's a proper response. There's a wise way to live that leads to joy. And look at verses 7 to 10. Uh, verse 7, he says, go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with a wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Um, in the ESV, the beginning of verse 7 uh, uses the word go, but some other translations, it actually renders it as come now. Um, and I actually like it that better because I think the connotation here is like, here is the response that you might not first expect. Right? Here's, here's like, it doesn't seem obvious. Um, and he really enforce, reinforces that with those two phrases in verse 7, right? with joy and with merry heart. So he says, life, even in this fallen world, is something that is given to us from God and meant to be enjoyed. Something that's meant to be enjoyed and not just endured. And when you read through these verses, don't miss all of uh, the wedding imagery in these verses, right? The white garments, the wine, the wife whom you love, uh, eating, drinking, dressing, loving. But the key to enjoying all of these good things is to receive them for what they are, to receive them as gifts from God and not means to gain. And that's what we've been saying throughout Ecclesiastes, to receive these things as things that are better than what we deserve for today and not just stepping stones for where we hope to be tomorrow. Right? I think this is what makes the preacher's words different from um, that saying maybe you've heard before, eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. And that, that saying is saying that nothing matters, right? So do everything you can now. Rather, the preacher is saying, uh, 
our response is to humbly and gratefully receive the things that come to us from God's hand. And so just a couple of specific points for application I want to focus on here. Um, First, I think the preacher's words here are a rebuke, but also an encouragement to those of us who struggle with just like chasing after other people's approval or, or that feeling of like, I have to achieve, I have to accomplish that next thing. I have to arrive at that next destination. Um, in verse seven, he says, for God has already approved what you do. And that word there uh, for approved elsewhere in the Old Testament, it actually describes God uh, accepting a sacrifice. You can read that in De- Deuteronomy 33, 11. Amos 5.22, it's God accepting a sacrifice. And so it says that God has already approved of your work. God finds pleasure in simply giving to us and us simply receiving, right? It's not tied to what we do or don't accomplish. And how much more so for us knowing that we're in Christ, knowing that God smiles down on us already, that you don't have to try to impress him. You can stop seeking the approval of others because you have the approval of God. You don't have to, you don't need to focus on where you hope to be tomorrow as if it'll make you better in the eyes of God or in the eyes of others, because you are already approved before God today. And then I think this leads us to our second application, which is in verse 10. And he says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom and shield to which you are going. When you think about uh, the different areas of your life, um, the preacher calls it your portion or your share. Can you honestly say along with that verse, whatever your hand finds to do, you do it with all your might. Um, The New Testament says a similar thing, Colossians 3.17, 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, whatever you do in, in word or deed, do it all to the glory of God. And can you say, honestly, whatever God has for you to do, wherever you are, that you are all there, that you are doing it with all of your strength. See, I think the Bible shows us that there is this alternative um, on one hand, living as if nothing matters, right? Just being completely apathetic, indifferent to life, just living it up, not caring about anything. And then on the other hand, just like attaching so much significance to God's gifts that they've become more than they're supposed to do, as if they're the only things that matter. I think there's a, a healthy, balanced way And we rightly receive and enjoy God's gifts by using them, by making the most of them, by recognizing that everything is this spiritual opportunity to uh, to glorify God and to give thanks to him as our giver. And we hear this all the time, don't we? Every moment is a worship moment. And so you want to know one way that we worship God with your academics? Well, be an excellent student. Get good grades, study hard, work at it with all your might. You want to be a good friend to the glory of God? Do it with all your might. Be present, not just when it's in, uh, not just when it's convenient for you. Some of you uh, are, are living at home with your parents right now, and you are waiting for when you can move back into the dorms or into the apartments. This passage teaches us this is a gift from God where you are right now. This is a portion that He has assigned to you. Are you making the most of it? Are you are you seeking? Uh, to love as well as you can, right? To do this with all of your might. Uh, I just did a, a Q&A for UCLA WCF on the local church. And so that topic is kind of on my mind, but uh, Beacon, God has placed you here during your college years at Lighthouse. Uh, don't think of it as like, 
oh, you're just passing through uh, during your time in college to somewhere else that you'll eventually be longer term. While you're here at Lighthouse, are you making the most of it? Are you seeking to honor him by being a member, a regular attender of this church to the best of your ability? So if you can take an inventory of your life, what opportunities today, right now, has God given you to work at with all your might? And who are the people, even the difficult ones, that God has put into your life to love and enjoy life with? And this is how we worship him. This is how we give thanks to God, uh, our giver, for the, the, the undeserved gifts that he's given to us. Um, the second, second point here, second mark of a life well-lived is to pursue wisdom in a world of folly. Pursue wisdom in a world of folly. Um, so, so far, uh, especially recently, uh, I think in these past few chapters in Ecclesiastes, we have talked about how wisdom is a good thing, right? Um, but actually much of our discussion, much of our focus on, on wisdom has been on the limitations of wisdom. And I just said that earlier. And I think that's kind of the the distinct and profound contribution of Ecclesiastes, just showing us like wisdom has a limit. We can't know everything that knowing all the right answers, making all the right decisions, it will not save you from the vanity and the frustration of this life. But here in chapter 10, the second section, rather than focus on what wisdom cannot do for us, the preacher actually focuses on what it can do for us. And he shows us the great value of wisdom in a world where it is largely undervalued. And he starts by telling us this story or this parable um, in verses 13 to 18, chapter 9. Uh, He says this story has really impressed him. Uh, Verse 14, it says, There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against them and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there were found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. So this isn't too hard to understand, right? You just have to look at the adjectives in this story. Um, There's a little city with few men and there's a poor man. And on the other hand, there is this great king with great siege works. And so you can kind of imagine this picture, this little city is like totally outmatched. Um, But actually what happens is it prevails, right? It prevails because there is this poor wise man who leads the city to victory. And the lesson of this short parable, this short little story, like it says in verses 16 and 18, is that wisdom is better than might. Um, He also says wisdom is better than weapons of war. You see that word better three times in in these three verses. So that's the the moral of the story. And like I said, that doesn't mean that wisdom doesn't have its limits. We still see that here. Uh, We see that wisdom is not always heeded. Uh, Verse 16, that says the poor man's wisdom is despised. His words are not heard. You can't control what people do with words of wisdom. Uh, Verse 18 uh, we learned that it can be easily corrupted or undone. It says one sinner destroys much good. Um, or this kind of weird illustration in verse 1 of chapter 10. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. All right, so we still see like there's limits to wisdom. But at least here in this passage, I think that's actually supposed to be even more motivation for why we need to pursue wisdom. The way of wisdom will be underappreciated. It will be ignored. It might even be scorned. The majority of people around you, they will not care about wisdom. But wisdom uh, wisdom is stronger than brute strength. But wisdom is really easy for us to neglect. And so because folly, right, the opposite of wisdom, because it is so prevalent 
And the preacher is saying, make sure you pursue wisdom, right? Do it even more. That's a big idea here in this section. And this, this collection of Proverbs are united in exhorting us towards valuing wisdom by, I think, showing us the flip side, showing us the danger and the consequences of folly. And so let me just go through some of these verses really quickly, um, and then I'll tie it up together for us after that. Okay, so uh, first, the preacher says that value and pursue, says value and pursue wisdom because of how destructive and how devastating folly is. They value and pursue wisdom because of how destructive and devastating folly is. Uh, I just mentioned these verses, but verse 18 says, Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. So he's saying there, all it takes is a little bit of folly to undo and to corrupt a whole lot of wisdom. And I think we, like, we understand this, right? We can maybe even think of examples, Christian leaders. Um, who have succumbed to this, like just, just one slip up, just one moment of weakness, one, one mistake, um, giving into temptation can taint a person's entire legacy, right? Years and years of wise living and just one little thing can, can taint their entire reputation. And I think that's, that's sobering to think about, isn't it? But I think the implication here is don't let your guard up. Don't, don't grow complacent. Don't think that you know enough. Don't, don't think that you are mature enough. You're strong enough. Pursue wisdom because, first of all, you need a lot of it and because it will protect you, like Seiji said. Verse 2, a wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. So here we see that folly, it is a heart issue. It starts in... Um, the foolish man's heart, but it's just a matter of time before it shows up in how you live your life. Uh, verse three, it says, it's clear to everyone where the fool's heart is, right? It's clear to everyone through his actions that he's a fool, that he lacks sense. Uh, verse four, if the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. And then jump down to verse 20. Um, Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king nor in your bedroom, curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice or some winged creature tell the matter. So verses 4 and 20, they have to do with how you relate to those in authority. And we talked about this back in chapter 8. But wisdom will lead you to conduct yourself in a beneficial way. right? And folly, on the other hand, it will result in certain consequences. Um, Here he says, wisdom looks like uh, not losing your cool. Wisdom looks like going slow. It, it, It looks like humble submission, like we talked about. And that's not always going to make sense to the watching world, right? That's, that's not always going to be popular, right? Like be willingly to be wronged. No way, the world says. But that's what the preacher said. Verse 16, wisdom is stronger than might. The words of, a wise, of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. So wisdom will help you to relate to those in authority. Uh, verse 5, there is an evil that I've seen under the sun, as it were, an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is said in many high places and the rich sit in a low place. I've seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. Um, These verses are about the prevalence of folly in our society. So folly turns things upside down, right? You have the unqualified who are the slaves and they're in positions of power. And then you have the qualified and they're on the ground like slaves. Um, I I think Seiji briefly mentioned this last time, but 
Like we see modern day examples of this, of just how foolishness and error have turned society upside down. You have just like really errant philosophies and worldviews. You have like gender confusion, identity issues, all of these things where like you see just society turned upside down, even in the highest places. <clears throat> Verse 12, the words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him. The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Um, these verses have to do with our words. And this is a common topic in Ecclesiastes and in the Bible uh, as a whole. But wisdom and folly will play out in the things that we say. The foolish person, person says a lot of stuff, even though he doesn't know what he's talking about. Okay, so, so wisdom has to do with our words. Um, and then uh, verses 16 to 19, last kind of part I'll point out here. Woe to you, O land. When your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning, happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Verse 18, those sloth or through sloth, the roof sinks in and through indolence, the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life and money answers everything. So uh, these verses show us that wisdom has to do with everyday practical living. And he says, the wise person is a diligent and hard worker. Uh, verse 18, it talks about how the folly or how folly leads to laziness, uh, which leads to shabby work, right? He says, the roof sinks in, the house leaks, you cut corners, you don't do a good job with what you're assigned. Um, verse 19 might sound a little weird to you. He says, uh, money answers everything. Right? Maybe you're wondering, like I thought the preacher just said in chapter six, more money, more problems. I think what he's saying there is that wisdom allows you to make the means that you need to provide. Right? Wisdom allows you to make money and money is good because you can use money to provide the things that you need. Um, if you look up at verses 8 to 11, we see that wisdom is patient. It doesn't cut corners. It understands the process of things. And all of this pays off practically for you uh, in the end. It benefits you. I know that's a lot, but I think it's, it's not so important to get caught up with each of these Proverbs as much as it is to really hear what the preacher is saying to us. What he's saying is pursue wisdom with all your heart in a world where folly is the norm. In a world where folly is so prevalent and folly is so dangerous and it's so easy to just get swept up with that way of living. Pursue wisdom, which is rare, and pursue it with all of your heart. See, if Ecclesiastes guards against this like false thinking that we can somehow know all the answers, that we can control or master this life, and it guards us <clears throat> from that by showing us the limitations of wisdom and reminding us that we are not God, then this passage also guards us from the opposite extreme, from not heeding the truth that we do know, right? From not listening to anything. It guards us from not... I'm paying attention to what God has taught us from, from living however we want. And so Beacon, do you recognize that the natural inclination of your own heart will be towards folly? That much of what this world will throw at you is characterized more by folly than by true biblical wisdom. I mean, do you feel the urgency of the preacher's exhortation to you here? 
And like we said earlier, realizing how much you don't know ought to drive you to grasp tightly and study and treasure and take heed of what you do know, the wisdom that comes from a God who has spoken. And so where do you turn to for how to live your life and navigate this world? And let me just give you three practical sources that we ought to just mine deeply from each day. Um, and you guys will know what I'm going to say. First is God's word. God's word. Psalm 119, 105. It says that God's word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And that, that picture, that illustration really only makes sense if you understand the implied contrast there, right? You need light because it's dark. You need scripture to be a lamp to your feet, to be directing and guiding your every step because you're walking through a world that is characterized by darkness, right? You are walking through a world that is characterized by folly. You cannot see even a few feet beyond a few feet in front of you. And so turn to God's word because it is a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. Um, Second uh, source of wisdom that you ought to mine deeply from is the counsel of others. Do you take the initiative in inviting others to speak into your life? Before you make a big decision or as you're thinking through a situation, are you willing to humbly ask, ask someone who knows you, hey, brother, sister, can you check my heart on this? And be honest with yourself, how difficult is it to change your mind about something, especially if it's something that you don't want to hear? Um, Proverbs 27, 6, it says, the wounds of a friend are faithful, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. You receive wisdom humbly from others. And then last, prayer. Um, James 1, 5, it says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. I mean, that's a pretty straightforward, isn't it? It says, if you lack wisdom, ask God and he will not only listen to you, but he will give generously to you. In fact, this, this verse is in the context of trials and suffering, right? Like if you ever need wisdom uh, in the midst of trials, even ask God, he will help you. He will provide for you. And it doesn't mean that you'll learn all the answers, but he will give you this kind of wisdom. He will give you this kind of perspective, even to understand trials as joy. Uh, because of what it produces in you. That's what he says in James 1, 2 to 4. I know we covered a lot of text tonight, but I hope that, that one of the takeaways for you so far um, from this passage and from our time in Ecclesiastes is that it has helped you and it has taught you to grow increasingly smaller, and more and more humble and dependent as creatures before our creator. I mean, there is so much that we simply do not and cannot no, and that cannot control about this life in the way that God works. And yet that doesn't drive us to despair. It doesn't make us indifferent or simply lead us to go through the motions, but it drives us to this sober, thoughtful, humble, and honest consideration of the kind of lives that we're living. As college students, you are all young. You have big plans for the future. There are many things that you look forward to. There are many things that you hope to accomplish. Um, And honestly, I hope you get to accomplish all of those things. That God has sovereignly ordained the day that you were born. and He has sovereignly ordained the day that you will die. He has allotted for you a certain number of breaths that you will breathe, not one less and not one more. And one day, God will call time and this life will come to an end. And do you ever think about that? The beacon, you're not there yet, right? That day is not yet here. And the preacher says that 
If that is true of you, then you have an advantage because the dead are already dead, but the living know that they will die. And so don't just drift, don't just wander through life in your college years. Don't just go along with the crowd without thinking long and hard and seriously about your relationship with God. The preacher says, you still have time to honestly ask yourself, what kind of life do I want to live? And here in our passage, the preacher says that you can live a life of folly along with the rest of this world, or you can live a rare life of wisdom. You can spend your life grasping and trying to gain and arrive at that next thing, or you can enjoy God's good gifts for you uh, for what they are today right now. You can enjoy those things with all of your might. You can waste your life by trying to control it or by not thinking about it, or you can live a life of worship by fearing God and spending it for him. You guys, for us as believers, for those who are in Christ, our great hope is that the moment that God calls time on our short little lives is also the same moment where we will be with him, where we will be away from this life that is marked by vanity and frustration and folly. And we look back at uh, chapter nine, verses seven to 10, and don't miss that wedding imagery, right? Bread, wine, white garments, the wife whom you love, Because I think scripture points us to another wedding in the end. That wedding where we will be wedded to Christ as his bride. The things that we, we enjoyed for just a brief time here, we will taste and we will savor in all of their fullness for eternity. And guys, for us, the best comes at the end. Begin in the meantime. Enjoy God's gifts today while you have them. Use them with all of your might as worship to God. Pursue wisdom, even though folly will be everywhere that you look. The preacher says these two things mark a life that is well lived. Let's pray. Father, we want to live our lives wisely and well, our short lives on this earth. Um, God, teach us truly to number our days, teach us wisdom as we recognize our limitations. Um, Guard us from from foolishness, guard us from just casually and mindlessly drifting through this world without a serious consideration of just the kind of lives uh, that that can be pleasing to you. Uh, Father, we thank you that you have called us to not only a life of wisdom, of right living, but a life of joy that you have given us Um, the perspective that is needed to to rightly enjoy your gifts as they were intended to be enjoyed. God, uh, we we acknowledge that for so many of us, we we have been so blessed with so many gifts, whether opportunities or abilities or relationships or um, just different provisions in our lives. We want to use them as as means to worship you and not just a means to gain for ourselves. And so take the truths of this passage, Lord, Uh, impress it on our hearts, Uh, make us smaller and smaller before you, Um, teach us to live lives of wisdom, lives of enjoyment to your glory. Uh, Whatever we do, whatever you have for us, you teach us to do it with all of our might. God, we thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.